I'm finally at that place in my life where I've let go of the need for external validation, the need to, to be seen and just to be me. Right? There's a there's a tremendous joy and a sense of self that comes from just being me. And then the stuff in my life, you know, I'm uh, I'm excited about my relationships, about my marriage, about my relationship with my kids, the relationships I'm building with my adult friends. That's been such a joy. We're empty nesters now, so I'm excited about you know just having adventure and being able to explore and without constraints in a way that we did before. And of course, you know, I'm excited about this work. I'm excited about the book. I'm excited about continuing on the journey of exploring what it means to be mindful and compassionate at work and really moving towards this goal that can never be fully achieved. Hello boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishan Gurk Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by Friday Newsletter. Every Friday I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers which mentions what I'm learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading and much much more you can find the newsletter link at my website www.nishangarg.me and i s h a n t g a r g.me and today's guest is scott shoot scott sits at the intersection of ancient wisdom traditions and the business world he currently leads mindfulness and compassion programs at linkedin after 25 years of customer oriented leadership roles he found his dream job where He gets to utilize his entire skill set and embrace his passions. In this work, he explores the possibility of human potential, helping employees become the very best version of themselves. I enjoyed this conversation so much with Scott, and I'm sure you will enjoy it too. He discusses about his new book, Full Body Yes, his passion for photography and creative process, how he serves as the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at linkedin and much much more you can find his new book link and show notes at nishankar.me/podcast and without further ado please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with scott scott welcome to the show thanks very much thanks for having me i have so many questions and topics for this conversation and we'll see how far we can go in this short period of time with you so i thought i would start with by asking you about your passion for photography can ah. you elaborate more on your photography passion for our listeners sure well i've always been interested in photography you know i used to every time i would travel i'd take my camera with me and i think i have a pretty good eye naturally but about 5 years ago my son went to college and i you know i was looking for something to kind of fill that time because we had been spending a lot of time together and i upgraded my camera and i learned how to use lightroom and photoshop i taught myself those things and and really took it to a whole new level and now i have a commercial website but scottshootphotos.com But here here's the deal like what I really think about photography is that it matches my desire to capture beauty and really capture the divine is what I'm going for but it also speaks to me in a technical way you know there's a, there's an element about me you know I originally got an engineering degree before going into different things so it's this beautiful blend of the technical the divine you know and just being out in nature tromping around in these idyllic scenes getting up at sunrise and sunset and kind of there's an adventure to the chase of the scene that i like as well it's all wrapped up in one how old were you when you started photography i found, i found the first roll of film i shot i think i was 7 or 8 you know on an old you know not nice black and white camera and i have all these terrible shots of my family or the tree you know in our front yard so i think that was the first roll of film i shot 
While growing up, do you did you have any role model in the realm of photography? Hmm. Maybe my older brother. I'm the youngest of five, and my oldest brother is 14 years older, and he is a really good photographer. And so I always kind of watched him, and as he unfolded, he he and I are both really into Ansel Adams, you know, and the the beautiful work that Ansel Adams did in in black and whites. If somebody wants to start on the path of photography and they're not sure how to start from, where to start from, do you have any advice or tips, practical techniques for people to get started or to hone their photography skills? Wow. I think, you know, practice, practice, practice. You know, there's something, it depends on the level. So first of all, it's deciding why, what is it you want to do? You know, so for my daughter, my daughter is a really good portrait photographer. And she, she just wants to take pictures of her friends and make them look good, you know, because <laughs> she's, and that's great, right? She's really, really good at it. She has a great eye. For me, I love landscapes. So first it's deciding what kind of photographer you want to be. And then there's the basics of equipment and you can do some really great things with an iPhone. But if you want to learn the ins and outs, you know, of really being a photographer on the technical side is, you know, learning how to shoot and learning all the controls of your camera. That's kind of the technical side. But really, honestly, it's practice, practice, practice. You know, it's just like if you want to be a writer, you read, you know, you read a lot and you read of great writers. If you want to be a photographer, look at the amazing pictures that are out there. You can find a photography site like uh, 500px or Pexels or just pick some great photographers and look at their shots and then just go practice. You know, I, my advice is if you want to be a landscape photographer, go shoot 20 sunrises and 20 sunsets all the way through, you know, an hour before the sun comes up and an hour before the sun comes down without moving and just watch how the light changes. And so it has to be something that you're really passionate about to get to that next level. If I remember correctly, you wrote a LinkedIn article a while back about creative process to take things to the next level. Is it correct? <laughs> That's right. I'm not exactly sure what I said anymore, but, <laughs> but, but that is correct. <laughs> so speaking of photography and creative process, what is your creative process to make things happen in your life and in your world? Mm. Mm. I think, you know, it starts with going where the energy is in lots of things. You know, there's lots of things that we feel like we should do. I'm making air quotes where we're supposed to do. And we often don't get the best results when we feel like, you know, we're supposed to do it, meaning somebody else thinks we should do it. So it starts with our own joy, right? If we're, if we're like any great startup, every great startup started because the founders wanted that thing for themselves, right? And so as you're creating, it should be enough just for yourself, like the joy in just creating that thing. And then over time, you know, just honing your craft and honing your craft. And then for me, there's something beautiful in the sharing. There's like this energy exchange. Like an another thing I do is I play guitar. And if I just play guitar without ever playing for anybody else, I'll stagnate. But if I know that I have a, an event to play for, a block party or friends over for dinner, then then it adds. I learn new songs. And then when I share, there's something that, that adds that spark for the next time I go practice. And just like photography, I, if I just shot for myself, at some point, I probably stop. But because I put my work out there and I, I'd like other people to enjoy it, there's something really beautiful that happens in that kind of ongoing giving and receiving process. And actually, I can relate to this concept of taking over skill set to the next level. If I start podcast just for myself, I wouldn't be able to learn. And if I'm trying to bring different guests from different areas, my game has to be up. I have to learn different things. That's right. If it's because you know that if you're putting it out there and you're inviting bigger and bigger guests, then you have to hone your skills, right? You have to learn how to ask better questions and market a little better and present a little bit. Like each thing forces us out of our comfort zone. And then we look back after years and realize our comfort zone has grown quite a bit and our craft has grown quite a bit with it. And the anxiety goes lower and lower when we yes. keep practicing over time. 
That's right. That's right. Scott, you grew up in rural Kansas, and you started meditation and mindfulness at the age of 13. Who introduced you at the age of 13? Yeah, it was my brother, my, my brother number two. You know, I grew up in the family church, and I always felt like I had uh, a deep connection to the divine. But honestly, the, what we were doing in our, in our community, our little church, didn't make any sense to me. And so I started asking all these questions that I didn't like the answers to. You know, so I was seeking early at 10 or 11 or 12. And one of my brothers, my second brother, had been out in the world. He'd been, you know, trying to make a living as a rock star, as a bass guitarist. And eventually the, the stages and the paychecks got smaller and smaller. And he came back to run the farm with my dad. And long story short, he introduced me to a path that he had found. And when he described this path, it was just like, like I was coming home. I wept for 45 minutes as he was describing it. It was like I found my truth finally. And not just after, you know, a year or two of looking, but lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. So it felt like a coming home for me. So this, this practice of going inward, of contemplating, has been a big part of my life ever since. How did your brother describe those practices and ancient wisdom? Well, maybe I won't go too deep into it, but he was, he was just describing a different way of how the world works for, for me. And, and, and this is just me talking, you know, I have, I have a role of mindfulness and compassion at, at LinkedIn and everything that we do at LinkedIn is totally secular. But I do come at this from a, a spiritual tradition. And in this particular spiritual tradition, and I'll stay neutral, I'm not going to name it, but we talk about karma and reincarnation and the way things work and the ability to, to work in the invisible worlds as much as we do in the physical worlds, you know, and really getting in touch with that deepest part of ourselves, which I would describe as soul. And so these exercises I would do, you know, got me closer and closer and closer to realizing myself as that highest part that as soul. We will get into your role at LinkedIn in a while. <laughs> so what was the first kind of meditation you started with? Yeah. Well, technically, it's not even a meditation. To the, I'm splitting hairs, but, you know, to the layperson. But we, the primary practice in my tradition is to use a mantra. And we use the word hue, H-U, long and drawn out, like hue. It's in some ways like the word om that many people are familiar with in that it's a charged word. And this is a word that I sing, you know, on a daily basis, you know, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes more. And for me, it acts like a tuning fork to that deepest part of me. So that's kind of the starting point. And in the preparation of this conversation, I saw this sentence many times in your different profiles, that you are a seeker. Hmm. You're seeking something. So, Scott, what are you seeking? Can you explain to us? <laughs> I've never had to define that before, but thank you for asking. A seeker in the traditional sense is a seeker of, I mean, depending on the context you're talking about, you could say a seeker of wisdom. I would say a seeker of the divine. And a seeker is always looking for, for, that, for that thing. You know, a seeker looks for wisdom wherever regardless of spiritual path, regardless of wisdom tradition, always looking for to discover, that, that discover that, that next realization of myself, but ultimately the realization of the divine. <laughs> I'm sure it must be difficult to put this thing into words. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I enjoyed This is my favorite topic. So thank you for asking. <laughs> So back in 2015, you wrote an article about leadership lesson that you learned from your dad, mm. who was a farmer. Mm. I did not get a chance to read that article. Mm. So can you explain that lesson to us? <laughs> well, I wrote it six years ago. And it was, you know, it was a time when my dad had passed away. And honestly, I don't remember exactly what I wrote either. But here's, here's what I learned from my father. My dad was, he was for sure human, right? He lived in this world and he had his own flaws, but some things he did exceptionally well. One of the things he did well was around attitude. He, one of his sayings to me 
and everybody was essentially most of your problems can be solved with a good attitude. And when I was 15, I didn't want to hear this. We had kind of a tumultuous relationship when I was a teenager. <laughs> but the older I got, I realized how wise this really was. Another thing that my dad did was he made everybody else around him better. Like people wanted to be around my dad. He just had a good energy about him. And he would do anything for his neighbors. He would do anything for his friends. Like he was just somebody that they could count on. My cousin told this story at my father's eulogy. So my cousin is, you know, one of my brother's ages. So he's you know 12 years older than me. And he came to live with us for one summer. My brother was from Omaha, from the city. And it's quite adventurous out on the farm, you know, when you're a city kid. And one day, my cousin and my two brothers and my dad had all gone to town just, you know, to mess around, to buy some stuff. They'd been at the general store. And on the way home, my cousin is uh, looking through his bag of stuff that he bought and he, got, he gets all excited. He's like, whoa, I'm rich. My brother says, what? What happened? He goes, the cashier gave me $10 extra. You know, my stuff was only $6 and I gave him a 10 but I got back 14, you know, and my brother said, oh, he thought you gave you a 20. You gave him a 20. And my cousin's just excited. He's gloating. And my father slows the car and there's a silence, right? And he looks at my cousin in the rearview mirror and he says, you're going to need to make that right. And that was it. He didn't say anything else. He didn't ever bring it up again. He didn't drive my cousin back to town. But my father held the tension between what was easy and what was right. And, you know, my cousin never forgot that. That lesson stayed with him. You know, he knew who the $10 belonged to. Now, the truth is, I don't think he made it back to the store. But that $10 hung with him for the rest of his life. And, and he lived a much different life because of my father's influence. And that's the same type of influence that my father had on me. Scott, how do you decide between what is easy and what is right? How do you think about it? Mm. It's a great question. It goes, I think, to our values, right? Each one of us, in, in order to know ourselves and then get closer and closer to our own truth, must first come to grips or come to an understanding of what our values are. And when we do something, every decision, you know, it will either be closer to or farther away from your values. So that can be big decisions like, should I end this relationship or start this relationship? Should I start a new job? Shall I leave this job? Those are big life decisions. And each one of those is really important that we get right with our values. But it's even on the little things, you know, how we, what we choose for breakfast goes to our values. You know, if I'm trying to eat healthy, if healthy is a value, then that informs my eating decisions. And so I think it starts with our values and just being clear on those. If we don't know what those are, then sometimes we're like a ship without a sail. What are your values at present moment? My values, family, love, living my values. And, you know, there's something that I'm growing into, which is being the full me. Right. And this is, you know, this is kind of what I wrote the book about. This is one of my values is to stop living for external validation and live because of my own values. We will come back to your book. And before that, I would love to know about your typical breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I have two typical breakfasts. One is the the quicker version, and that is you know, some yogurt and fruit and, you know, granola or cereal all mixed together. And then it's funny, you know, I'm getting older. I just turned 50 a year or so ago. And I was at the doctor and I had like borderline cholesterol. And he's giving me a hard time about my diet. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I'm a, the healthiest person I know. What are you? I eat so healthy. He says, what do you have for breakfast? And I tell him what I told you. And he's like, sugar, sugar, sugar. I, oh, man. <laughs> so, I have to tame down my yogurt and fruit and cereal. And the other thing I eat is uh, I do a scramble 
which I'll make a big thing. Now that we're in quarantine time and, you know, I'm not getting fed at work anymore. I have to make my own breakfast. <gasps> the shock. <laughs> I'm, I'm making the scramble of sweet potatoes and veggies and ultimately eggs is in the scramble. And then I, you know, I can have that for a few days. Thank you for answering. <laughs> this is going to be uh, a non-linear conversation where yeah. we will jump from one place to another. Totally fine. Totally fine. Yes. And uh, when somebody asks you, what do you do at LinkedIn as part of the head of mindfulness and compassion, how do you usually respond to that question? Well, maybe first let's back up and talk about how I got this position because that's useful to understand the context. So my career has mostly been as an executive in customer service organizations. Even at LinkedIn, I was the VP of global customer operations, which, you know, when I, when I exited the role three years ago, it was uh, a team of about a thousand people. Very complicated, very, you know, demanding job. And I've been a dual agent. You know, as you mentioned, I've been doing these practices since I was 13. I've been teaching since I was in college. It's a big part of my life outside of work. But it's not something I've talked about at work, right? I've been covering, you know, I've been hiding that part of my life. But about six years ago, I looked around at LinkedIn and thought, wow, this place is so open. It's so amazing. You know, our CEO at the time, Jeff Wiener, was talking about his own practice using Headspace. And he was talking about compassion and leadership. And I was thinking, wow, this is a place I could bring my own practice, you know, in a secular and open kind of way. And so I met with my friend who leads our wellness group and we got excited, both got excited about me leading something, you know, because I'm a leader at the company. And then I went back to my desk and I did absolutely nothing about it. I was terrified because I had all this ego and fear stuff, things like, you know, what are people going to think of me and what will this do for my brand? And will I get in trouble for this? <laughs> and I finally got over all of that and just started by leading one session, you know, on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the heavenly conference room. I thought that was very auspicious, the heavenly conference room. And the first time, there was one guy there. And I'm sure that at that moment, he was just as scared as I was. I never saw that guy again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the next week, there were three. And the week after that, there were five. And then it just turned into a regular thing. And then people knew that I did it. So I'd get invited to bigger things like the marketing team would have an offsite and have breakout sessions, you know, with 80 or 90 people. And I'd get asked to do, lead these breakout sessions in meditation. Or the CFO would have a summit and I'd be asked to kick it off with a meditation. And I kind of got known as the meditation exec. And this was still from my old job in operations. And I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program. We didn't have one. But myself and a bunch of other volunteers created one. And now I think it's, you know, probably the world's leading, if not one of the leading meditation programs in the workplace. And then for me, the tipping point was about three years ago, our CEO, Jeff, gave the commencement address at Wharton and talked about compassion. And I was thinking, that's interesting, you know. And then the next time he's on TV, this all the reporters want to talk about is compassion. So I was thinking, okay, I'd been in my role in operations for six years it was time for me to do something new. And here we are talking about compassion as the most important thing people can do to be successful at work, to be successful in their lives. But what are we doing about it at LinkedIn? You know, what does it even mean? And so I made a pitch to Jeff and to our head of HR and with their great support created this role, head of mindfulness and compassion. So there are two parts. My tagline or my vision is change work from the inside out. And there are two parts to the role. The first is to mainstream mindfulness. And the second is to operationalize compassion. Now, mainstreaming mindfulness is just what it says. It's to make mindfulness or mental exercise just as commonplace as physical exercise. You know, I didn't know this, but physical exercise is actually a fairly new thing. You know, there's articles from the 70s and 80s about executives who are running and no one's even chasing them. Like, it's kind of a, it was a strange thing back in the, yeah. Can you imagine? Like, we, we take it for granted now. But exercise was a weird thing 50 years ago. And so my job is just to make mental exercise, mindfulness, just normal. And so we lead meditation classes. We lead workshops about mindset. 
we, we give people access to apps. We do a 30-day challenge to kind of encourage everybody to get involved and just kind of make, you know, make these practices normalized. So that's the starting point. Are you working as a full-time mindfulness head at LinkedIn or do you have other roles at LinkedIn? <laughs> this is it. This is what I do. It's uh, myself and another person who was my assistant in my old role are the the team. And we have about 100 volunteers that work with us. And between the two of us who are full-time, we report into learning and development. And our amazing team of volunteers, we create massive scale and you know massive offerings for, for what we do for the 16,000 people of LinkedIn. There are many, many different definitions of compassion. So, Scott, what is your definition of compassion yes. in your own version? Yes, thank you for asking. I think compassion is the capacity, it's three parts. The capacity to, one, have awareness of others. Two is a mindset of wishing the best for them. And three is the courage to take action. Compassion really works fine when we are in happy mood. Mm. How do we practice compassion with people we are annoyed with? <laughs> <laughs> that is what I call black belt level compassion. It is, <laughs> it is really hard. Now, let's be real. It is really hard. Sometimes that person is ourself. Sometimes the person we have the hardest time being compassionate with is ourself. So we start with self-compassion. And that's a whole other thing. But the the secret to compassion starts with seeing the other person as similar to us. You know, we often focus on our differences, you know, and you see it in the news. We're completely focused on the polarity. But the truth is 98% of us and every other human on the planet, 98% is the same or similar. You know, pain is pain, suffering is suffering, winning is winning. And then there's 2% difference, but we focus on the differences. So to really have compassion for another, it's to realize, wow, this person who really annoys me, and look, I don't have to agree with this person, but just try this. Just recognize that this other person is a person just like me. Like they have a body just like me. Sometimes they're at ease in their body. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. They want to love their friends and family just like I do. They want to be successful just like I do. They want their plans to work out. And you just like list all these things where they're just like me. They're just trying to get by. And so here's the thing, how mindfulness and compassion are related. When we do mindfulness, when we practice mindfulness and we grow in our own strength and we start to recognize that we exist beyond the human body, beyond the mind, beyond the emotions. And there's this deeper part of us, which is pure, which is infinite, which is divine, perhaps. Then we start to realize, oh, wow, everybody else has one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we can see ourselves as this highest part, then we can start to see others from this highest part as well. And again, it doesn't mean we have to forgive them. It doesn't mean we have to uh, agree with them, but we can start to see them in that way, which is super helpful. So, what would be the practices, tangible practices or concrete practices under compassion? Sure. It doesn't have to be complicated. There's a, there's a meditation practice. This is kind of the traditional one called Metta or Just Like Me or Loving Kindness Practice, where we do just kind of what I was saying. We see the other person as this higher part. That's a meditation. The, but it can be really simple. You know, if we think about these three things, first, know the other person. Be aware of the other person. Okay, starts there. So, we can just listen. Right? So, there's this quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. He said, I'll paraphrase a bit. He says, I don't like that guy. I must get to know him better. Right? So, we can just listen and listen not so that we can talk, but listen deeply to what this other person is saying. Get curious. Why do they think the things that they think? Why do they believe? What, what is their background that causes them to believe this thing? And not just understand those so I can try to convince them differently but really, truly get curious. So, it starts with listening. The second part is to have a mindset of kindness or a mindset of wishing the best for them. Wow. So, this, this is actually black belt level kindness. So, imagine scrolling through your favorite social feed, whatever, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, 
sometimes we run across people that we feel a little pang of jealousy about. Wow, they got promoted or they went on vacation or they have that girlfriend or whatever the things are, we feel jealous. But if we can just be joyful for them, like again, regardless of the situation, joyful for them, that's another one of those black belt level compassion things. But it can also be super simple. And so, you know, we talk about microaggressions sometimes. Well, here are some micro compassions. You know, a micro compassion could be as simple as smiling at someone, you know, making a connection. We're at the grocery store, we're waiting in line. Instead of just looking at my phone, maybe I make eye contact and just smile. That's it. Doesn't have to be anything else. And make a connection. Because when we allow that space, when we really listen to someone, when we smile at them, we give them space to be fully heard. We give them space to be themselves, right? And so as we become more vulnerable, as we become more of ourselves from this higher place, we allow them to cooperate from this higher place as well. Does being compassionate come naturally to you or you have to cultivate me personally, I've had to cultivate it. You know, I think I'm wired in a certain way. I'm wired towards optimism. But what I'd also say is I was wired for competition. Right? I'm the youngest of five. I spent my entire childhood <laughs> and really most of my life trying to achieve, right? Trying to achieve, probably, I didn't figure this out till later, but trying to achieve so that my dad, so that my parents would notice me, love me, so I'd be recognized. Now, I think this is mostly what all of us do, right? We're looking for that. We're thinking about ourselves so that we can get external validation. Now, comp what compassion is, is first to recognize, I don't need anybody else to give that to myself. That's self-compassion. I can give that to myself. But then to start thinking about others, you know, to so the achievement, it's not just about me. How do I develop myself and hone my craft in service to others, including myself, in service to the whole. So I have for sure had to cultivate that. It, that part was not natural. Would you have some advice or recommendation for our listeners to make this practice stick and really integrate mindfulness and compassion into our mm. daily busy schedule? Sure. Depends on what you want to do. So let's break it up. So let's think about mindfulness for a second. I think first, we're, and some people like in a room, you know, if there's a hundred people in the room, I'll, I'll do a little poll. I'm like, who here has tried, has never ever tried meditation before? And out of a hundred, it's like three or five. And on the other hand, I say, okay, who here has a daily practice without fail daily? And again, it's three or five, which means <laughs> the, the other hundred or the other 90 people in the middle have all tried some sort of meditation, but it doesn't stick or it doesn't stick till it's a daily practice. So I always start with like, why are you doing this? You know, just like physically working out. If you go to the gym, one day you go to the gym and he has you, you know, do bench presses until you can't feel your arms anymore. You're like, well, that was fun, but not really. <laughs> but, but why would I do it the next time if my friend's not around? Unless we have a really clear idea of what we want out of mindfulness, it's hard. And so for me, what I know is I'm a better version of myself when I practice. You know, when I'm having a lousy day, eventually, maybe not that day, but at some point when I come off of my lousy day, I ask myself, hey, you know, have you really put in the work? And the answer is always no. So I, for me, I know why I do it. So I start with knowing. And then two is, I referenced the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's one of my favorite books. And he has a lot of tips in there about how to create a habit. And one of the quotes I really love is, look, our lives do not rise to the level of our goals. They fall to the level of our systems. So in other words, you might have this great intention to start a practice, but unless you have a system, you, nothing, let's be real, nothing is going to change. Your system has to change. So build a system. Okay. What does a system look like? Well, first start with what, what is your goal? Maybe you have a goal of meditating for 20 minutes a day. Don't make that your goal right away. Your goal should be, I'm going to meditate for 30 seconds every day. Pick the smallest, the atomic level of what you can do. I might get good at that 30 seconds because, hey, that's, that's a low bar. And to get to that 30 seconds, now what am I going to do? I'm going to pick the same time every day. I'm going to set an alarm. I'm going to schedule it in my calendar. 
I'm going to physically go to a place that is different. So it's, you know, different for me. Me personally, during, especially during uh, quarantine time, I went outside, no matter what the weather is, I go outside in my backyard. And that's kind of a, you know, a ritual for me. And it helps me continue the habit. So build the system that's going to make it, you know, happen for you. And the same thing is true with compassion. If you want to give compassion, let's say, let's pick something. Let's say you're going to give gratitude. You're going to share gratitude once a day. In other words, you're going to send an email. You're going to handwrite a note. You're going to call. You're going to text somebody once a day. Again, set an alarm. Schedule it in your calendar. Pick the smallest thing that you can commit to. And then over time, that becomes a habit. And then those habits can spread into something a little bit bigger and more impactful. What is your personal favorite gratitude practice? Oh, <laughs> I like, well, there's so many. I like starting meetings, especially staff meetings with, you know, asking people what they're grateful for and why. And not everybody has to go, but it's just kind of an open invitation. And this is a beautiful way to start a meeting. It shifts us from kind of our natural negativity bias into one of more of optimism and forward looking. It ultimately makes us more creative. It helps us bond and connect with our with our peers and our peers in our group. So I love that one. And then as a personal practice, I just love the random acts of gratitude. So I'll pick somebody, you know, from my from my phone that I haven't talked to for a while, and I'll text them out of the blue and just say something, you know, that's kind of outrageous. It's like, hey, I hope this finds you in the middle of a smile. I love you. You are awesome. <laughs> and the person's like wait what are you is are you okay like is everything fine <laughs> like, <laughs> do you send that message to your friends or co-workers ex-co-workers yeah, both well? everybody whoever <laughs> <laughs> i usually get a response <laughs> so i want to ask you about your meditation practice so how often do you meditate on a regular basis or what's your current meditation practice look like my current meditation practice which is the strongest it's ever been i essentially traded commuting for meditating time is i i get up in the morning at 6:30 ish and after i get around i go outside i literally go outside i bundle up even in the winter i, I have like my snow pants and parka on i'll go outside with a blanket and and I do a practice that is somewhere between 20 and 45 minutes. And honestly, that's the best I've ever been. This is the most regular I've ever been. So it, ha it hasn't always been that way. But since quarantine started with COVID, I've been really pretty regular. And that is a walking meditation. Oh, uh, no, not walking. I'm doing my, I do a number of things. I do uh, the mantra hue that I talked about earlier. That's kind of the starting point. And then I do a series of, depends on what's going on. Every day is different. I might do some affirmations, kind of like some intention setting about what I want in life. That might be about a relationship or a work project or just whatever's going on. I might do some visualizations. I try to keep it a little fresh, you know, so, it, so I'm doing something different. Because what I find is that if we just do the same thing every time, it becomes rote and then it loses the juice that made it so valuable in the first place. So that's what I do. Are you allowed to speak about your affirmation? What affirmations do you repeat in your mind? <laughs> Am I allowed to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Am I going to tell you? Maybe. Let's see. It depends on what's going on. And so, so as an example, maybe my wife will listen to this someday. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go there. So... You know, there's been times when when I've been married for 27 years, all right? And there's times, and we're great. And there's been times when it hasn't been great, just probably like every other couple in the world. And so I always choose an affirmation that's in the present tense. But it's in the present tense, and I state what I want it to be. And so I might say something like, you know, my relationship is full of joy. We are aligned in every way. We are aligned physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally. And our relationship is a model for all of human behavior. We are best friends. We love spending time together. You know, and I'll go on and on. And, and I can tell you, sometimes I'll say those things in kind of the, 
when sometimes the opposite is what feels like is true. And I find this to be really powerful. Uh, and then I let it go, right? I let it go. Because if it's for the good of the whole, whatever I'm trying to manifest will happen. And if I'm supposed to be going through some other lesson that I don't know about, then I'll accept the lesson and I'll go through <laughs> that. But I'm trying my best to do my part to create the goodness that I want in life. You have been married for 27 years, and I'm always fascinated by the topics of relationships. So what has been the secret sauce in your relationship? Wow, secret sauce for 27 years. The secret sauce, part of it is just persistence, you know, just a commitment to each other. Part of it is we chose well together. Like we are aligned on the most important things. And there for sure have been times when we argue about the periphery but we're very much aligned on the core things. And to me, the core things are, you know, money, kids, family. And then the kind of the next layer is we love a lot of the same things. We like to adventure together. You know, we have a, a sense of, of the way life should work. And so it's, again, those values, like those core values we're, we're very much aligned on. And then, you know, sometimes life puts us in challenge <laughs> with each other or brings up situations which tests which tests our relationship and tests some of those core values. Does your wife meditate as well? She does. She has her own practice, different than mine, but something that's that's important to her as well. Can you talk about that different practice? Well, she should totally tell her own story. So, I you know, she has I know, I'm not going to share her story. She she should have uh, she should have the freedom to tell her own story. <laughs> <laughs> and now I would like us to shift some gears. Okay. Your new book is coming, Full Body Yes. What do you mean by full body yes in your new book? The full body yes is when you just know. When every atom, every particle of you just knows and align and you just feel it like this is right. Now, look, sometimes this happens in really mundane situations like, should I have the eggs or the yogurt for breakfast? <laughs> and you just know, like you just, you just have a knowing. But what's most profound, what's most poignant is when we're in the middle of a struggle about relationship, about taking a job, about one of these big life transitions, about something we've been struggling with to understand. And then, and then we have it. We have that full body, yes, that feels so good. I'll give you an example. When I was, you know, interviewing for this job at LinkedIn, this has been nine years ago now. I loved my job before this. I loved my company. I loved the people I worked with. I didn't want to leave. And so I was kind of, I was interviewing, but I was talking, I was skeptical. I'm like, mm, I don't know. This sounds like a lot more work for less money. <laughs> it's how I felt. It's how I felt about it mentally. But one night, kind of halfway through the interview process, I just woke up. It was like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was wide awake, not just a little awake. I was wide awake. And I just had this deep knowing. It's like, I'm supposed to do this job. I'm supposed to take this job at LinkedIn. Like, I don't know why. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And for me, that was the full body yes. It's just a deep knowing where it's beyond the mind. It's beyond logic. You just know. And what are the practices under full body, yes. And how should people approach your book to implement in their lives? Sure. Well, look, there's so much in there, but let's talk about like, how do we get that? How do we get that full body? Yes. The first, you know, I kind of have this four part teaching arc that we go through. And the first stage is to really know yourself, you know, to understand your own story, like understanding your body, you know, why do I get upset? What do I act like when I get upset or happy or whatever it is? Understanding the external systems, like who, who am I trying to please, right? When I make these decisions, who am I making these decisions for? And having a deep appreciation for your own story. That's the first part is to know yourself. The second part is to love yourself, right? To, to see yourself as more than this, this body and this emotion, but to start to recognize that deepest part of yourself. And it's that voice, that, that voice from that deepest part of you that we're trying to listen to, right? This is where the, the message of the full body yes comes from, is that is you, 
but it's that it's that part of ourselves that we don't access all that often. The third part then is to master yourself. And this is where it's hard, right? This is where the work comes in, is to realize that I'm the only one that's responsible for my life, right? It's shifting gears from viewing that life happens to me and I'm a victim to one where life happens for me. And that each lesson in my life is so that I can learn, I can learn how to, you know, give and receive love ultimately. So this mastership is, is the difficult part. And then, and then we learn to have those same three steps for somebody else. And this is compassion. So then it goes to knowing the other person, loving the other person, and then taking action for that other person. And all of these things, you could spend lifetimes trying to figure out how to do the most basics. So, but that's the recipe. I have heard about wholehearted yes that whenever you make any decision or think about major, any major or minor changes in your life, mm -hmm. you listen to your mind, then you listen to your heart, you listen mm -hmm. to your body, Yeah, mind, body, spread. So sure. is full body yes the same concept as wholehearted yes? Maybe. It's in that world. So here's an example of an easy technique to try. So let's say you're choosing between two things. And maybe if you're listening, you can, you can try this right now. And so first get clear on your two choices, A or B, right? And then you start to imagine choice number one, choice A. And you let that roll around in your mind. And you imagine, what is it like if I've already chosen that? And you start to visualize, what is my life like after I've chosen A? Okay? And then you really get clear on it. Maybe you spend a little more time on it on your own. And then you take a really deep breath. Deep breath in, deep breath out. And then you just notice how you feel in your body. And then you let that go. And then you think about choice B, choice number two. And you imagine that one. And you imagine, okay, here's my life if I choose choice number two. And all the things that happen, you know, the good, the bad, all of it. And then you take another deep breath. Deep breath in, deep breath out. And see how you feel in your body. Almost every time I've done this, it becomes really clear. And then you ask yourself, how? <laughs> how did that, why was that so clear? Where is this information coming from? Is that the mind? No. I don't think science has caught up to where this place is that we're getting this information. But that's what I mean by the full body yes. It's like you just know it in every part of you, starting with just this knowingness in your body. Would you mind giving us an example from your life it could be a recent example when you had two choices and you applied full body yes principle sure i'll tell you the actually the story that's from the front cover of my book so on the front cover of my book there's this orange rhinoceros and and i kind of wanted a symbol where somebody would look at the book and they're like what what is that and hopefully they got curious about it and not just put it away so here's the story of the orange rhinoceros about i don't know five or six years ago I was in my role, my operations role, and my top lieutenant was leaving. He was taking a, a promotion with another group inside the company. And so, we needed to replace him. And it's a big job, right? And I knew that my success was going to be the success of this person, right? So, it had high stakes for me personally and high stakes for the company. We got all kinds of people involved. We got VPs and leaders from other groups to be involved in the interview process. So, they would also be in line with the change management process. High stakes. Now, we got to the final two candidates, an internal candidate, an external candidate. And here's what happened. Exactly half of the interview team said, great, love the external candidate. I don't really think that the internal candidate can do the job. <laughs> exactly half, the other half said, love the internal candidate. Not really sure about the external candidate. And so, I found myself in this tough position. It was going to be my call. And I knew that no matter what I choose, I thought I might upset half of the group that I'd gotten involved. Now, my life strategy is around, you know, likability. My skill is around collaboration and getting people to agree on things and work together. So I'm not, you know, conflict is not my best strong suit, right? And so we had done all the interviews. We'd gotten all the information possible. Both of these candidates would be great. Either one was totally qualified for the job. There was no more data to go get. So I was just going to have to make the call. 
Now, some people go with their gut, but here's what I did. I was in, I was in contemplation one day, you know, and I kind of threw my hands up in the air. I was having a conversation with the thing, whatever you want to call it, the divine. And I'm like, look, I don't know what to do here. And I don't do this very often, but I want a sign, right? I want a no doubter sign. And so I'm going to, so show me a sign within the next 24 hours. And I started to think of the two candidates. If it's the external candidate, and I remember she had long, really dark hair. If it's the external candidate, I'm going to see a, let's see. Oh, here it is. I'm going to see black hair tied up in a bun, you know, with a butterfly pin holding it together. Okay. As I was thinking, I'm like, that's interesting. I'd never thought of that before. I'll just, I'll just let that go. Okay. And if it's candidate number two, and I thought of them, if it's candidate number two, I remembered they had an orange backpack, an orange work bag that always carried around. If it's candidate number two, I'm going to see an orange, an orange rhinoceros. And as soon as I said, I'm like, what? How, how, how's, <laughs> how's this going to work? How am I, where, where am I going to see an orange? Okay. Okay. Fine. I'm going to let it go. I let it go. I threw my hands in the air. I'm like, all right, I'm watching. Next 24 hours, I'm watching. So I let it go. Didn't think anything more about it. Next day, maybe the day after, Friday afternoon, late on a Friday, I'm with my team. We went to go to the movies, work event. We're at the movies. A new Star Wars movie had come out. We're sitting there. I'm having my popcorn. I'm kind of letting, letting the stress of the week fall away from me. And there's a preview for an animated movie. And across the screen rambles an orange rhinoceros. <laughs> now, the mind is jumpy. The mind's like, whoa, 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 was that orange or was that maroon? Kind of maroon. Like, didn't you think that was kind of maroon? <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but I checked. I checked inwardly, you know? And I'm like, does it feel right? Does this decision feel right? Because here was the sign. And it felt right, you know? And that was it. That was the decision. I announced it, you know, the next day. And this person was amazing at the job. But that's, that's one of the practices I use. When you talk to your divine, so-called divine, yeah. how do you talk? Do you have a written practice or a verbal <laughs> practice? I just talk. And, and you know, the divine talks to me in a language I can understand. So it's like, dude, I don't get it. Tell <laughs> Not that the divine is a guy. It's just like, you know, I just talk as if it were my friend. Because and sometimes it's just a feeling with no words, right? If I'm out in nature and the light is streaming through the trees, like I just feel that connection. But when I but when I want to talk to it, I just have a conversation, just like I'm having a conversation with you. I don't I don't talk to it any differently. I might <laughs> I might be a little more humble. <laughs> Put on my divine voice, you know. Is there any other thing you would like us to Give a trailer about your book so that mm. it influences us to buy your book. Yeah, I just hope you read it. Like people ask me, you know, what what does success look like? Success for me looks like people reading it. There's this is not one of those boring business books where I teach some big model and you have to. It's, it's not like reading Six Sigma or whatever. Oh, no offense to people who love Six Sigma, but my point is like this is about life. These are stories about life. And they're not just my stories, but they're the stories of you. There's the stories of each one of us, the struggles that we go through. And there's about 40 stories. And I guarantee that there's at least one of these stories in here, which you'll identify with and you'll go, oh yeah, that's me. I see it. I see it. I see you. I see what you're doing. And so my, my hope is that each person has at least one story that alters the trajectory of their life, even in some small way. You are a good writer. I've read a couple of your articles and they are really good. So what was your writing process ah. for this book? Yeah. So it followed my morning practice. So every morning I would go out under my big oak tree in the backyard. I would do my practice. And then immediately I would go inside without touching my phone, without opening email. And I would immediately write for 30 minutes at a time. I'd set a timer. And when 30 minutes happened, I'd make a decision on whether that was it for the day or I'd write another 30 minutes. And then I would stop. And then in the evenings, I would, you know, print things out and edit them and redline and do all kind of the mental stuff. But this, I know I'm best and my creativity is best right in the beginning of the morning before anything else happens. So that was my process. Did you write 
on paper or did you use any software? Uh, computer. I just wrote in Word. In, you know, doc. doc. Yeah. Why did you write this book, by the way? Why did I write it? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. I've been thinking about writing a book, you know, my whole life. Like, even as a kid, I knew I would write a book. In fact, I, I wanted to know if I would be a writer, you know, when I went to school. But I chose another path. And so, I always knew I'd write a book. And about in December of 2019, I was coming home from an event with the, my friend Soren. We were doing a speaking event. And he's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And he gets this funny look. And he says, the universe has told me to tell you it's time to write your book. <laughs> and, and I kind of checked inwardly. I'm like, does that feel? And it felt right. And so it was time. And the timing has been perfect. You know, this pandemic in, in many ways has been, you know, very hard at the human level. But on a creative level has been amazing. It's been a gift for me because it's given me the time. I have, you know, an hour and 45 minutes a day that I'm not commuting. And so, I've essentially put that to writing and the creative process. But ultimately, the why, beyond just this impulse, the why is that it's an impulse. Like, this is my mission in life. You know, as this dual agent, I think I have a certain level mm, of beingness in the work world, but also a certain level of beingness in the wisdom traditions. And I feel like it's my job to kind of blend the two together. How can we take the best of both worlds and make spirituality practical, but also make the work world a more compassionate place. Thank you for explaining, Scott. So Chip Conley, who wrote a beautiful testimony for your book, I sent him an email and asked him, what would you like to ask Scott? <laughs> so he said you could ask him about his experience at the Modern Elder Academy. And I am not sure what is that. Can you explain it, please? <laughs> oh, Chip is marketing is what he's doing. So Chip created the Modern Elder Academy for people, you know, probably 40 to 60 and, and beyond on both sides to go and decide who they wanted to be, you know, for the who they want to be for the next half of their lives. And my wife and I recently had a chance to go and hang out with Chip and hang out with the crew there for a couple of weeks. So it was a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful place if anybody gets a chance to go. So my experience of it is I had this two week period where we're in Baja, we're in Mexico, and I did all these amazing things. I got to swim with whale sharks. I got to go to uh, a sweat lodge. I got to experience sunrise and sunset in magical, you know, beautiful places. And all those things were amazing. But what was most amazing about the two weeks of my life were these connections that I made. And I think this is the lesson of life, right? It's these connections that I made, which will last with me. These, these people will be my friends for a long time. And even if they aren't in my life for a long time, the impact they've had on me because of the connection we have has been profound. And so that's what I would say about the MEA. <laughs> and his second question is, how do we cultivate and harvest wisdom in the modern world? So I thought you were going to, I thought he was going to ask, what was my favorite part of Chip's latest book? Why is that work? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No. Okay. So the question is, how do we cultivate wisdom? Is that right? And harvest wisdom in the modern world. Ah, yeah, I think it's the, it's the, it's the parts I talked about earlier, but really what's a simple answer to that? Harvesting wisdom. It starts by being open to wisdom. You know, many of us are closed or maybe we have a certain spiritual tradition and we ignore every other spiritual tradition on the planet. We think, oh, I have to be reliant or, you know, not reliant, kind of married to my own practice. Wisdom comes in all kinds of places. Wisdom comes from overheard bits of conversation. Wisdom comes from even the dumbest TV show has bits of wisdom, you know, that will land perfectly. A fortune cookie has tremendous wisdom if I'm open to it. So the first part is just to identify yourself as a wisdom seeker, as someone who wants wisdom. And then wisdom will naturally come to your life. It will be harvested by you. And I am looking at my notes, if I could ask you something interesting. So you talked about Jeff Weiner, about bringing compassion 
and being open up about compassion at LinkedIn. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him one-on-one about mindfulness and compassion? Yes, I reported to Jeff for two or three years. So we we have talked about it. We've had some good conversations about it. He's been very supportive of the work that we're doing. Do you remember any favorite conversation, if you could speak about it? You know, the the real gift that Jeff has given me and everybody at LinkedIn was talking about it publicly, right? Instead of just privately, he would talk about his practice openly in front of every employee at LinkedIn. And he talks about compassion in a very open and public way at Wharton and then on TV. And I think this is the most important thing is moving it from beyond the private and what I'm willing to share just one-on-one in the confines of our one-on-one space and bringing it into the public forum. So I think this is, you know, perhaps the biggest gift that Jeff has given to the world. And in fact, Reed Hoffman talks about philosophy, all these practices very openly. That's true. That's true. Scott, what are you most excited about emotionally in your <laughs> upcoming years? Oh, wow. I'm most excited about so many things. First of all, about just being me, right? To, to I'm finally at that place in my life where I've let go of the need for external validation, the need to, to be seen, and just to be me, right? There's a, there's a tremendous joy and a sense of self that comes from just being me. And then the stuff in my life, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm excited about my relationships, about my marriage, about my relationship with my kids, the relationships I'm building with my adult friends. That's been such a joy. We're empty nesters now, so I'm excited about, you know, just having adventure and being able to explore and without constraints in a way that we did before. And of course, you know, I'm excited about this work. I'm excited about the book. I'm excited about continuing on the journey of exploring what it means to be mindful and compassionate at work and really moving towards this goal that can never be fully achieved, but this goal of changing work from the inside out and just trying to make as much progress on that as possible in, in the time that I've been given on this planet in this life. So those are the things I'm excited about. Is there anything else you would like to explore in our conversation before we wrap up? Wow. Anything else? That I have not asked you. Sure. Maybe there's a practice that I would leave us with, and this is around self-compassion. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we're the hardest one to have compassion for. And so this is a practice that anybody can try. In fact, I encourage you to try it right now. First, let go. Open your mind. Be open to any wisdom that might come. And put your hand on your heart. In the shot, you do it too. Put your hand I'm on your heart. <laughs> and you can do this, you know, when you're getting ready in the morning, putting, you know, brushing your teeth or makeup or hair or shaving, whatever, who you are. And if you're doing it in the morning, you can look yourself in the eyes in the mirror. But just for now, hand on heart, close your eyes and say your name followed by, I love you. And so I would say, Scott, I love you. Nishant, I love you. <laughs> Yeah, okay, this time do it without laughing. Try it one more time, Nishant. Nishant, I love you. Yes, yes. And yes, this feels strange, especially in the beginning, especially in front of other people. So first, thank you, Nishant, for being brave and vulnerable. But when we can do this, when we can love ourselves unconditionally, without filter, without laughing it off, without pretending, you know, and just really, really deeply, maybe for the first time ever, look ourselves in the eyes and say, I love you. Then we have a chance. We have a chance to recognize that deepest part of ourselves, but we also then have a chance to start seeing other people in the same way and hopefully giving and receiving that love in the same way towards other people. Beautiful. Scott, this has been a very fun loving conversation with you and i truly truly mean it thank you i appreciate it and thank you for having me yeah and where would you like our listeners to find you about your book links and resources please share 
Sure. The book is called The Full Body Yes. It can be found everywhere books are sold. So support your favorite uh, bookseller. You can find more about me and the book at scottshoot.com or thefullbodyyes.com. They both go to the same place. And uh, for daily updates or you know regular updates, follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm mostly hanging out. I'm all over social media, but mostly LinkedIn. And, f- and don't be a stranger. Reach out. Let me know. Hey, let me know if you did this last practice with me and reach out and tell me. I would love to hear from you. Yes, and I will put all the links in the show notes at the top. And before we wrap up, I want to state one quote from your work. Compassion is having an awareness of others, a mindset of wishing the best for others, and the courage to take action. So, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy the podcast, would you please consider leaving a short review on Apple Podcast? It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference in growing this little show. I also love reading reviews. Instructions are if you are on an iPhone, simply scroll down to reviews inside the podcast app. If you are on a desktop, click on listen on Apple Podcasts under the Nishant Gurk Show. Once inside iTunes, click on ratings and reviews and you are set. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.